Hello, my fellow true crime junkies, and welcome back to another episode of Confused and Homicidal. I am again alone this week, today, right now, which is fine. Which means that I, Andrew, am homicidal. And this week, again, you guys are all confused. Whoever's listening, you guys are all confused. I just wanted to say a quick thank you to sticking with us, even though I know our uploads have been very sporadic recently. Summer has been crazy. I've been crazy with work, but we're trying to trying to make it work. So hopefully we get back to uh, regular, regularly uploading soon, especially once school starts. That out of the way, let's jump back into the Times Square torso murders. So after the murders at the hotel, everyone was starting to talk about it. It was all over the news, and everyone at Cottingham's work was starting to to talk about it as well. While at work, Cottingham observed someone talking about the cases and they were asking things like, who could have done this? Who, who, who could be this awful that they would do something like this? And dead serious with no emotion and just like a robot, Cottingham replied, it could have been me, it could have been you. No one took him seriously at the time because everyone thought he was joking. He he liked to talk and he did that a lot. He was always talking about all the sex clubs that he was going to and he was constantly bragging about things he was doing to sex workers and to other people. So they took everything he said with a grain of salt and they really didn't really believe it anymore. So they all thought they were joking. But while everyone was talking, police were starting to make connections between some of the cases. Specifically, this is when the New Jersey police put together... The the police started putting together the cases, and this is when they put together the cases of the two sex workers that were just murdered and set on fire in the hotel, and Mary Ann Carr. Oh, I read my notes wrong. They haven't made them yet. Police weren't making connections. They were not making connections. At this time, everyone was still just talking about it, but police have not started making connections yet. Specifically between this case and the Marianne Carr case, because the levels of brutality were so different, and there weren't a whole lot of similarities in defining factors to say that this is definitely the same person who did this. But as with sexual serial killers and serial killers in general and people with addictions, they need more and more to fulfill their desires. Quite similar to a drug addict or anyone, anyone with any sort of addiction. And Cottingham definitely started needing more and more. His attacks start getting more and more violent as well as him prolonging their suffering more and more. Slater later comes out and is proven that he does not enjoy the murder itself as much. He enjoys their suffering, which is why he eventually starts torturing his victims over 
prolonged periods of time. And this is when it starts to get worse. On May 5th, 1980, Mary Ann Sancanelli, who was a housekeeper at the Quality Inn Motel in Hasbro Heights, New Jersey, she was cleaning room 132. She noticed that one bed had not been slept in, which is kind of weird. There were two beds. Why wasn't one slept in? But even though it didn't look like it had been slept in, the bedding was like crooked and out of place. And she was kind of confused by that. Some reports say that uh, she just continued about her business and was vacuuming when she hit something that was underneath the bed. But whether she was vacuuming or not, she found something underneath the bed. She lifted up the mattresses and there was a body. The body that she found was the body of a naked and handcuffed deceased female. This woman would eventually be identified as 19-year-old Valerie Ann Street. She's described as a pretty girl with large breasts. She was very much Cottingham's profile of his victims. She fit the profile very perfectly. And this, this girl in particular, it seemed as if she had been arranged in a certain way her, especially her breasts, they they were jutting out in specific ways, and it, her body was just placed in a very provocative way. Her hands were handcuffed beneath her, and the only difference in the victim profiling here is that she had strawberry blonde hair instead of a dark hair, and she was around 5'4". She had been severely tortured. Her handcuffs were so tight that they left deep red marks around her wrists, and her body was covered in bruises, slashes, stabbing cuts, and bite marks. And this becomes very important later, but her left nipple was nearly severed because it had been bitten or slashed so badly. It was later concluded that she was likely tortured for hours and hours without end, and there was also later tape residue that was found on her mouth, probably to keep her quiet. Her neck had two ligature marks, which suggested strangulation, which is a very intimate killing, but this, and I think that this was later confirmed to be her cause of death, um, but there were, there was also a, a very large abrasion on her lower back, which were identified and concluded that they were torture marks that Cottingham yeah, Cottingham was torturing her there. But on this girl, there was no other identifi identificating, no items to identify her at all at this time. Dr. Louis Napolitano conducted the autopsy and concluded that she had suffered a severe blow to the right side of the head, which caused head trauma. And when asked how long the torture went on, it, Dr. Napolitano concluded that the torture had taken place over a 24-hour period before her eventual death. The only evidence towards what might, uh, who might have done it was a partial print on the handcuffs and a broken piece of an earring. Valerie had registered for the room under the pseudonym Shelley Dudley because she was a sex worker and didn't want to give out her real name just for her own protection. She checked in at 4.30 p.m., and she never checked out. She was later identified by her fingerprints, and her head, un and unlike Cottingham's previous victims, her head and hands had not been cut off. But this is when police started making connections. 
Valerie was the second woman to have been murdered in that hotel. Marianne Carr was found tortured in the parking lot before. And yeah, so this is when the police started putting those two cases together. Because they had both happened right, right in that same place in very similar fashion. And this is when... Cunningham started really ramping things up. His cooling off period significantly decreased and his attacks became worse and worse. Now just over a week later, on May 12th, 1988, Cunningham dumped cocktail waitress Pamela Weisenfield in a parking lot in Teaneck, New Jersey. She had been drugged, beaten, and her breasts had been bitten uh, repeatedly. Only 10 days after Valerie Ann Street's murder, on May 15th, 1980, Firefighters were again called to another hotel. This time, it was the Seville on East 29th Street. There was a mutilated woman found with multiple deep bite wounds, and she had been set on fire. So very, very similar to the other case in the hotel that was set on fire. Her head and her hands were both still attached, but unfortunately, her breasts had been completely sliced off, and they were displayed on the headboard. Cottingham probably did this to satisfy increasing urges, but also to gain notoriety. He was working towards the perfect murder. That was his end goal. He was trying to perfect murder and get away with it, always. It's also later concluded that he was just trying to get attention with this, this placing the breasts on the, on the headboard, and he kind of just did it to change it up and have some fun, which is completely messed up, and I, it's crazy. But this victim was later identified as 25-year-old Jean Roger, and she she was identified via her fingerprints as well as photos. And she was another sex worker that worked in Times Square. And this is when police were starting to realize that this was the same killer, so they probably had a serial killer on their hands. And the calling cards that the police were noticing at this point were because were the deep bite marks, the charred bodies, and the mutilated breath. The killer had completely sterilized the room afterwards. Cottingham was amazing at cleaning up after himself, which is totally crazy. I hate hate to say that he did anything good, but if he did anything well, it was cleaning up after himself. In all of these cases, there was really no evidence, except for the the one half print on the handcuffs in the one of these previous murders. There were really no there wasn't a whole lot of other evidence. He left the clothes, and that was about it. Cottingham was now dubbed on the news and all media sources as the Times Square Killer or the Torso Killer. And as I was just saying, they really had l very little evidence to pointing towards who it was. Really, all they had were bodies and burnt hotel rooms. Police did have a link between the Valerie Ann Street and the unsolved car case from 1977, but police in both jurisdictions would be puzzled for a long, long time. And around this time is when trouble started arising in the Cottingham household. In April of 1980, Cottingham's wife filed for divorce. She charged him with, quote, extreme cruelty. She claimed that he had been refusing to have sex with her since 1976. And we know that this is because he would only get aroused by violent sex, and he didn't want his wife to know about his other life. So she was not fulfilling his sexual desires anymore just on his own. So he was not being intimate in that way with her at all. Cause 1976, that is when the first known killings are. 
His wife claims that he left he would repeatedly leave their family without money or essentials and he would come home at 4 or 5 in the morning when his shift would end at 11 p.m. the night previously. So they were confused as to where he was going. He was extremely secretive about it. And apparently there she she cites one specific incident where apparently he went on a vacation alone. We can probably assume that he was off murdering someone. But I kind of I find that one kind of funny that she had a problem with that. But I don't know why. The complaint against him also alleged he'd visit Plato's Retreat, which was a heterosexual swingers club in Manhattan. And she also claimed that he was a habitable habitable patron of gay bars, and he was a frequent at other gay bars. And this unrest at home infuriated Cottingham. He this is when his victims. After this point, his attacks become a lot more vicious and less thought through and this is where he starts to slip up his next victim was leslie ann odell she was five foot four and she was a sex worker who worked the corner of lexingham avenue and 25th street she was only working for about a week before she met cottingham she was she had just moved there and she got picked up by a pimp almost immediately after getting to new york she arrived with very little money and she was trying to make ends meet and to fulfill her dreams cunningham approached her and called himself tommy he plied her with drinks until 3 a.m offering her a way out of the dangerous New York pimp situation, and wanting to get out of that situation, she accepted, and they headed off to New Jersey. Along their way, they stopped at an all-night diner. Leslie eventually agrees to perform sexual acts for him for $100, which was going to be the first, like, the money to be used towards her new life. And after, after they did what he wanted her to do, he would help her get to a, a safe place. He left Leslie in the car and checked into the Hasbro Heights Quality Inn Motor Hotel, which was the same exact place as his last victim, Valerie Ann Street, which happened less than three weeks earlier. Which, no one recognized him, he was fine. He got room 117 that, without a problem. The pair of them entered through a back door, and he left her in the room while he went back to his car. And when he returned, he returned with whiskey and a bag. He offered to give her a massage and acted as if they were friends, and she didn't really feel endangered by him at all. She didn't feel threatened, so she flips over on her stomach and kind of gets ready and... That's when he pulls a knife on her. He handcuffs her wrists behind her back, and he, then after handcuffing his her hands behind her, he flips her over onto her back and started cutting her while telling her about all the th awful things that he was going to do to her, which is very much um, like the toy box killer, where he, he would play the audio message and go and great detail about all of the things that he's going to do to these women which is completely awful and it makes me feel sick <laughs> just thinking about it but while all of this is going on she feels him biting her nipple and this is the one where he bit down extremely hard and tore off her nipple completely and then it's reported that he was licking her blood from her breasts after her nipple was removed 
After removing her nipple, Cottingham continued to rape and sodomize Leslie. He had forced her to perform fellatio, he beat her, and he sliced her with a knife. And all the while, he was talking to her about all the ways that she was going to suffer. And talking, him telling her and seeing the fear that what he was saying induced in her, that it made it even more arousing for Cottingham, and that's what helped him to get his high. And this is another, also, in between rounds of torture, whipping, sodomy, rape, etc., he took the time to wipe her face with a damp washcloth. And I'm confused by this. This is, like, similarly how I was talking about in part one, where he would fold the clothes of the deceased woman. It's almost like a little bit of humanity in him, but also really weird. I don't know, I don't know how to place it. It's almost as if he's doing a little bit of good, but at the same time, he's not, because he's also still torturing and sodomizing her and doing completely awful things to her. So, I don't know, I'm confused about that, because this isn't, he's not the only serial killer that I've heard of that does similar things like that. But anyways, at one point, Cottingham uncuffed Leslie, and she tried reach, she was trying to reach under the bed for the gun that he had threatened her with earlier. And she did manage to get a hold of it, and she pointed at him, and she pulled the trigger. Click. Click. The gun was a fake. It was not real. It was a toy gun. And he used that moment of surprise, of her surprise. He grabbed a knife. At this point, she screams, and reports are later say that the screams came around 9.30 a.m. The front desk clerk responds to the screaming and immediately calls 911. They're on high alert because someone was murdered at their hotel not too long, three weeks ago. So the clerk hears the screams, calls 911, and then goes to check it out. The clerk demands that Cottingham open the door, and Cottingham had it set up where Leslie is supposed to open the door and say that she's fine, while he kind of hides next to her, behind her. So he's out of sight, but she's in plain view. But all the while, he still has a knife on her and is threatening her. Somehow, she, while her words were saying that she's fine, either her eyes were saying it or she might have been able to make a hand gesture to the clerk, but he got the story that she was not okay. Which, thank goodness, if, if he hadn't gotten the message, who knows what other atrocities might have happened. And this was the first time that Cottingham had allowed his pleasure from screaming to override his desire to not get caught. He didn't, he wasn't realizing how loud the screams were, and this caused him to be careless. He felt so above the law that he got careless, and it would eventually lead to his downfall. Cottingham eventually, after after the clerk went away, he, Cottingham attempted to flee, but was apprehended very quickly, and he was found with a bag. And this bag would, turned out to be a bag of his torture devices. At the time of his arrest, his bag included things like handcuffs, tape, which he either used for their mouth to keep them quiet or to bind their hands or legs. They found a leather gag, two slave collars, a switchblade, replica pistols, which were the, the fake ones that he was using to threaten people with, and lots of pills, including Valium and other date rape drugs. The two arresting officers were Alan Greco 
and Ed Denning. Cottingham then had his rights read to him, and he began claiming that this was just consensual sex, that there was nothing wrong about it, which obviously was not true. And he claimed that he paid her $180, so he could do anything, and the amount was not right. But either way, that's a messed up thing to think. The amount that they had agreed upon was $100, even though he said that it was $180. When arresting him, they were trying to get him to talk. So they tried appealing to his ego, and um, they were telling him good things, like that he did a good job in staying hidden for them as for so long. And they did this in hopes that he would eventually just spill, um, spill his guts and confess to everything. All that they really got from him, though was far less than that. All he really said was, quote, I have a problem with women. And that's all that he would really tell them at the time. Cottingham was still trying to convince him, them that um, this was all consensual, and he just claimed that his encounter uh, with this sex worker was so savage and so brutal and so severe, only because he was just really stressed out about his divorce, which had been postponed at this point. The, the wife temporarily called it off, and just everything that was going on at home and at work, uh, he was just claiming that it seemed very stressful to him, and so that's why he said that everything Thing was so so violent. He claimed that he went to go see a movie and then went to a restaurant before picking up the sex worker, but when the police asked, he couldn't remember what theater or what restaurant he was at or what movie he saw, so immediately they did not believe that one Later, he told the cops that he went to a bar on Times Square called the Blarney Stone, and after that, he went bar hopping and claimed that while bar hopping, he was when he met with Leslie, and then they made an agreement there. At this point of questioning and stuff, he started referring to Leslie as, quote, the female subject, which this just goes to show a point that has been made that his victims really weren't humans to him. They were not other people. They were just his play toys and all that. Uh, he he used for his own good and not the good of everyone else. When he was asked which bars he was bar hopping to and from, he kind of just tried to avoid the question altogether, or he claimed that he couldn't remember, and he claimed that everything was just a game, that he and Leslie were doing a consensual sexual game, and that everything was okay, which we know everyone knows, really, that it was not okay, and it was, it was not, I mean, it was a game to him, but it was far more than that. When his claims of bar hopping and just consensual sex did not work, that's when he lawyered up, and he hired Dean Conway as his defense attorney. Conway even admitted that he thought that they, they had caught Cottingham red-handed, and was annoyed that Cottingham wouldn't admit, admit to what he did. So, even his defense lawyers like, yeah, you, you did this, you got caught. Police in different jurisdictions began working together, and connected some dots between murders and the places that Cottingham had lived and frequented. Up until this point, the New Jersey police and the New York police hadn't really collaborated, and they didn't put together that the person who was doing these murders was the same killer as the other murders. But at this point, that's when they began to connect the dots and realize, oh, this is the same person. It has all the same calling cards, and there's just so much evidence because he was there for work, and he used to live in the Lechwood Terrace apartments and other things like that. But 
Cottingham unfortunately would not say anymore. When he refused to comply to questioning, detectives got a search warrant and searched his home, which in the basement they found a private room, which, and in that room, which none of none of the rest of his family was allowed to go into. They found a lot. They found a lockbox or a safe that had a tiny plush koala bear that belonged to Valerie Ann Street. They found pieces of broken earrings, which if you remember, at one of the scenes they found a piece of broken earring. So it is the later matched to be the same earring. They found an apartment key that fit Mary and Carr's apartment, and they also found women's clothing, porn magazines, SNM books, porn artwork, and just other horrible, horrible things and that tied him to a lot of his victims. And they concluded that he was keeping these as his trophies, which he used to remember and relive experiences of the torture and of the killings. And th this is not uncommon. A lot of a lot of serial killers or other people, they sometimes take trophies and it's just to further help and help them reach their high of what they're looking for. And yeah, Cottingham was originally only charged with holding Leslie against her will, but the charges against him quickly started racking up, especially after they searched his house and found things. They eventually found the stuff that linked him to all of the other murders as well. He was eventually charged with several charges of kidnapping, attempted murder, aggravated assault, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, aggravated assault with a weapon, rape, aggravated assault with a weapon, sodomy, aggravated assault with a weapon, fellatio, uh, illegal possession of a weapon, possession of controlled dangerous substances, sarcobarbital <laughs> and amobarbital, and the possession of da controlled dangerous substances, diazepam or and um, also known as Valium. Within days, police had had enough evidence to charge him with the murder of Valerie Ann Street, and um, they continued to collect more evidence, and they eventually linked him to quite more. After Karen Schilt and Su Susan Geiger identified him in a police lineup, a grand jury indicted him on charges including two more murder charges and the attempted murder of another and kidnapping of three others. But Cottingham maintained that he was innocent. On October 5th, 1980, now he hired a second defense attorney, Peter Doyne. Cottingham pleaded not guilty in front of Supreme Court Judge Fred Seagald. Cottingham was bound for trial and held on $350,000 bond. At this time, during trial, he knew that he was caught red-handed and that he was not getting out of this. And this is when he started seeing no way out of it, so he attempted suicide. At this point, he tried it three separate times. All were thankfully unsuccessful, and it's really all because he did not want to admit that he did what he did. He he wanted to take the, the easy way out and just not have to uh, worry about admitting to it, because he that's not what he wanted to do. One of his suicide attempts, he tried smashing his glasses and using the, gla the broken glass to slit his wrists. So after this, Cottingham heads to trial. He will face four different trials in four different jurisdictions for the several murders that he that he was that he committed. The first trial was in State Superior Court in Hackensaw, New Jersey. The judge for this case was the Honorable Judge Paul R. Hoot. It began in May of 1981, and it would last for four weeks. He faced one charge of murder of Valerie Ann Street, along with kidnapping, assault 
and attempted murder of four other women, all who testified against him. And these women were Susan Geiger, Karen Schilt, Pamela Weisenfeld, and Leslie Ann Odell. He was indicted for the murder of Valerie Ann Street, as well as the attempted murder of Leslie Odell, kidnapping and assault of Susan Geiger, Pamela Weisenfeld, and Karen Schilt. To the jury, Cottingham looked like an everyday man. He, he looked normal, he had a normal life, had a normal job, and his wife believed him that he was not guilty of it. She withdrew the divorce and stood by him during at least his first trial. And he really had his whole family tricked because they believed that nothing was wrong while all the meantime he was having affairs and murdering these women, torturing them, brutally, brutally torturing them, causing all sorts of havoc. But while he may have tricked his family, the entire prosecution and even Cottingham's own lawyers knew that he was guilty. And eventually, the jury would find that as well. During the trial, Cottingham took detailed notes. He tried to pin everything that they said on someone else. He was very involved in his defense, and all throughout the trial, he was calm, collected, and really intelligent. And he, he did a very good job at trying, trying his best to defend himself. It didn't really work very well, but at one point, he actually took the stand himself, and he thought that he could use his charm to win over everyone in the courtroom, but it really didn't happen. He was, he's been so used to all of his life just kind of getting his way with things and people doing what he, what he wants them to do, but this was not the case here. Cottingham testified about how he fantasized about defenseless women from a very young age. He said that he forced people to call him master, and if they didn't, there were severe consequences. He claimed that he would never murder, but it's obvious that he did these things. He ended up being on the stand for four hours. He claimed that he was with his girlfriend during four out of the five incidents, and the fifth one, he denied the kidnapping and assault of Susan Geiger, and he also did that for Pamela Weisenfeld. He denied the assault on Karen Schilt, even though all of them had already taken the stand against him and specifically pointed him out, not only in the court in front of the jury, the judge, and everyone else, but also in the lineups that I talked about earlier. They immediately picked him out out of everyone. There was no hesitation. They knew. He also denied the murder of Valerie Ann Street. He just tried playing, he tried to play off that his fingerprint was on the handcuffs, but uh, William J. Van Otta testified about the fingerprints and how it was made. He's a fingerprint specialist, and he had scientific proof that the fingerprint was actually Cottingham's. But Cottingham, he thought he could get away with murder. He thought he could, he he thought he was getting off scot-free out of all of this, or at least he was trying his best. So he hoped that the jury would overlook the fingerprint as well as all the similarities in the assaults. He was trying to blame it on everyone else, anyone but himself. And the, the similarities in all of these cases were not helping him at all. Cottingham's defense used. The, the fact that a lot of his victims were sex workers, he, they tried using that against him. They tried getting the jury to question the credibility of the witnesses because of their reputations as sex workers. They also tried claiming that the crime scenes were so different that they claimed that it had to be a different killer. It could not be the same killer. Um, there were, and yes, there were some differences, but Generally, there were a few calling cards that were very similar, if not the same. And while they, they were trying their best to get him off, it was not working at all. They not only tried to 
disparage the jury from the from the sex workers, but they tried boosting Cottingham's image. They tried to show that Cottingham was an ideal employee and that he loved his job and he was very devoted to it, but the, the prosecution completely destroyed that. They called in people from his work and they called in people from his work and they testified against him that uh, he was cheating the clock. So basically he would come into work and changed the clock on the computer that he would clock in and out of. So it made it look like he had worked for 10 hours, but he was really only there for like 15 minutes or so. So he wasn't at work a lot of the time. It was also reported that he stole from co-workers and it really it the the defense is trying to trying to boost trying to boost his image really came back to bite him in the butt because it really brought his character into question. A lot more than it was before. All in all, even with the defense's best efforts at trying to, um, the defense's best efforts to try to deflect the blame and all of that, the evidence against him was extremely overwhelming. And in June 1981, Cottingham was convicted of 15 of the 21 felony charges. Cottingham then attempted suicide by drinking six ounces of liquid antidepressants and he was found and he was brought to a hospital and later stabilized at the hospital it did not work thankfully and on july 25th cottingham was sentenced to 173 to 197 years in prison for those murders and attempted murders it was for the murder of valerie ann street and the assaults of the other women he was also fined two thousand three hundred and fifty dollars and he would not be eligible for parole for at least 30 years. After this, Cottingham then went on trial for the murder of Marianne Carr. Three days into the trial, he ended up collapsing in an elevator. And this was on February 25th of 1982. He was transported to Persian Pines County Hospital in New Jersey, and he was di diagnosed with a ulcer of some sort. Because of this, mistrial was eventually declared, and so he shipped him off to jail, back to jail rather, and he would eventually get retried, but uh, the court date was not yet set for that. Cunningham was stabilized and then was transferred to a hospital unit of Trenton State Prison, and at this point, no immediate retrial date was set. On September 28th, 1982, Cottingham was retried for the murder of Marianne Carr. He requested a non-jury trial, which means he only had to convince Bergen County Superior Court Judge Fred Seagalda that he was innocent, and this could work for him or against him. He he only had to convince one person. He, he hoped that that was going to help him. Evidence was, was piled up against him, and he knew it. On October 3rd, 1982, Cottingham managed to escape his holding cell during lunch. He made it out of the courthouse even, but as he was running out, he was spotted by Officer Alan Grigo and was quickly back into custody. On October 13, 1982, just over two weeks into the trial, Cottingham was found guilty of the murder of Marianne Carr and sentenced to 25 years to life with a minimum of 30 years, served consecutively with his previous sentence. On March 30, 1983, Cottingham was transferred from Max Security Prison in Trenton 
to the men's house of detention in Manhattan. He was now going to go on trial for the murder of Didi Gadarza, the Jane Doe that was found with um, her, and uh, Jean Rayner. And later, on July 5th, 1984, Cottingham again attempts suicide, and this time he was trying to slit his left forearm with a razor. He was not successful, he was stopped, it did not work. Four days later, on July 9th, 1984, the jury found Cottingham guilty of murder for all three women. And later, in, on August 28th of 1984, he was sentenced to an additional 75 years to life in prison for those murders. After sentencing, Cottingham was moved back to New Jersey at Trenton State Prison, which was is now known as just the New Jersey State Prison. It's the maximum security prison, and it's one of the oldest in the United States. This was the last of his trials, but there were several cold cases that the police suspected were related, were linked to, to Cottingham, but they didn't have concrete evidence and he was not saying anymore he was not admitting to anything and he he would not talk about the the murders but in 2010 cottingham did confess to another murder and this was a cold case from 1967 this was the murder of nancy vogel she was found under a blanket in a car in Ridgefield Park, New Jersey in 1967. He pled guilty to this murder on August 25th in Hackensack, New Jersey, and at this time he apologized for his actions to the victim's brother and his two children, and the victim's brother and the victim's two children. I don't know if that was a sincere apology or not. I have a feeling it's not. It was most likely just to get a reaction out of them to further his enjoyment out of all of this because he's not murdering anyone anymore, he's in jail, but he's just trying to still get as much out of it as he can. And this is the first time that he actually accepted responsibility for anything, which was very unlike him. He, all throughout the rest of the trials, he was trying to blame everything on everyone else, and he would not, he would not take responsibility. And for the murder of Nancy Vogel, he was sentenced to another life sentence in prison. This was not the last time that he would confess, though. In 2014, he confessed to the murder of Jacqueline Harp, Irene Blaze, and Denise Alaska. The three of them were headed to go to the mall, and they never made it to the mall, and their their bodies were later found in the car. And it was a cold case, and, they, and the police hadn't solved it, they had not linked it to Cottingham, but he did confess to those. And all of the ones that I've talked about so far were cases that we know that Cottingham was responsible for, but there are countless other cases that Cottingham could have been responsible for, but we are not entirely sure. There are six cold cases in Bergen County that they suspect were Cottingham, but they are not entirely sure. This this is including the August 1974 murder of 17-year-old Marianne Pryor, and he eventually did plead guilty to this murder in on April 27th of 2021, and also her 16-year-old friend, Lorraine Kelly. They disappeared during a shopping trip, and the girls were found raped and beaten. The wrists and ankles had been bound. Their, their bodies were found in the same place that Cottingham had killed Nancy Vogel. They also suspect that he was responsible for the murder of Helen Sykes, 
who disappeared from Times Square in January of 1979. Her body was found in Queens. Her throat was slashed so deeply that it almost decapitated her. This murder was so brutal that her legs were found a block away from the rest of her body. And they were still side by side, like her legs were still side by side as if they were still attached, but in reality, they were not attached. Super weird though. It's the body was portrayed in a, a way that like it looked like it was supposed to all be together still but the torso up and the waist down were in two completely different spots. They were a block away. In 2021 he also was charged with the murder of Diane Cusick and I forgot to mention this earlier but after the first trial his wife divorced him, and she is no longer with him, thank goodness. She was completely dumbfounded that he was responsible, and she had no idea. He, she divorced him. But now we know that Cottingham is safely behind bars for good. For a while, Cottingham would not talk to anyone, but in 2011, he actually struck up a connection with a reporter, Nadia Fazani, who spoke to an interviewed Cottingham, and they eventually, the interviews eventually took place on February 25th of 2013. She was just trying to figure out why he did it, because that was something that he never, he never explained, and we assume that it's just because he enjoyed it, but, and he eventually did get to tell her, but it's guessed at that he only really talked to her because she fit the profile of his victims. She had long dark hair, tall, um, and she had very similar physical attributes as a lot of his victims did. In these interviews, he talked a lot, and Cottingham claims that he has murdered way more than what he was found guilty of, and way more than the bodies that were found. He claims that he has killed between 85 and 100 women. He was not specific about the number, but when asked how many he killed, he kind of played a game with the reporter and then the number 85 came up and she asked have you killed 85 people and he told her to put the number up a little bit and then she would be closer and then she asked if it was more than 100 and he said it was less than that so the actual number of how many murders that he committed is not actually known but the ones that i talked about are the ones that we know for sure and she eventually got him to admit that he enjoyed the torture. He did not enjoy the murder. That was just part of what he did, the part of the process, but that was not the part that he enjoyed the most. He enjoyed the torture and seeing the pain in their faces and hearing their screams and all of that awful stuff. He claims to have over 80 perfect murders, and he claims that he was doing this every other weekend for, for many, many, many years, and they concluded that it would be over 80. Some of the aftermath that came out of this, reporter Rod Leith wrote two books entitled The Torso Killer and The Prostitute Murders. And then there was a book that I read that was the, uh, the majority of my research for this case. It was written by Jack Rosewood and it's called Richard Cottingham, The Torso Killer. And it's a great book. If you're interested in this case, I highly suggest that you go and 
check out that book. I got it on Amazon for a couple of bucks on like the, the Kindle app and it was really worth the money. It's a good read. You should totally think about reading that book. Yeah, the, the book follows the timeline of the known murders in chronological pretty chronological order, but it also goes further into his psychology and things like that. So it's very, very quite interesting, and I enjoyed it very much. Professionals were, were baffled by this case because there were, there wasn't any big, like, huge traumatic events in his childhood. There wasn't abuse. There all, seemingly, there wasn't really a whole lot of traumatic events until he started going to the S&M clubs, which then taught him. This one, in, in the cases, um, in the search for, like, nurture versus nature, this might be a case for nature, and that it was really in him, like, this evil was in him the whole time, and it just came out later in life, but it also could be nurture because of the S&M clubs, and it was after that that, it was after that he started visiting those clubs that he got more violent, and it was kind of learned behavior from that. There is a website if you know any information about these cases. It is crimestoppers.ny polonline.org. So if you know anything or if you have relatives that went missing around that time and you think from that are from that area and you think that might be related, they're always accepting more tips. And to close out this episode, I'm just going to read all of the names of the victims, the murderers and the survivors, just to leave you with that. Mary Ann Carr, Mary Ann Pryor, Dee Dee Gadarzy, Lorraine Kelly, there is a Jane Doe, Jacqueline Harp, Irene Blaze, Valerie Ann Street, Jean Rayner, Denise Velasca, Helen Sykes, Nancy Vogel, Diane Cusick, Karen Schilt, Susan Geiger, Leslie Ann Odell, Pamela Weisenfeld. And there could potentially be way more. Those are the ones that we know he did, that he was linked to, that he admitted to, that he confessed to, that he was convicted of, all of those. Overall, this was an extremely sad case, but I guess I hope you guys enjoyed it. So, yes, if if you did, we have all of our socials if you want to check out more. We have a Facebook, it's CNH Pod. We have a Twitter, at CNH Podcast. We have Instagram, at CNH Pod. And we also have a TikTok, at CNH Pod. And we have a Gmail, which is cnhpod at gmail.com. So if you ever want, if you ever have any suggestions that you want us to, to talk about, then shoot an email over there if you want to just have a conversation, start a conversation. Uh, Tori and I are happy to do that. Sorry that she couldn't join us for these, but hopefully that she's back with us soon, because um, I miss her, and it feels weird doing it without her, but I hope you guys enjoyed this solo episode, and yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed, and I will see you next time. Bye!